All right. So, and there's uh, our new missionary, uh, Pastor Kale Horvath, or uh, is now his, their, their, their missions cards are on the back table back there. So if you want to take one home and put it on your fridge, that would be fantastic. Okay. So we are going to continue today in the great escape, right? We have been in the book of Exodus. This is our 79th message in the book of Exodus. Um, I don't know how many messages it's going to work out to be, but we might be in maybe another year. I don't know how it's going to be, but you know what? God's got a plan for the book of Exodus and we've been walking through it. It has been amazing. Today's message is power packed, but this, what we're doing is a little mini-series within The Great Escape, which is called A Willing Heart, A Willing Heart. So last week, we were in Exodus 36, verses 1 through 7. And in those verses, what we saw was we saw the introduction from the, from the instructions that were given to where we actually start, started to see what went from just words to now actually taking, taking shape. As the people are giving their offerings, the men are working and constructing it. But what was interesting is the people were so excited about being a part of the work of God that they just kept bringing and bringing and bringing. And eventually, Moses had to actually stop the people from being bringing because it was so abundant. It was and they actually used the word too much. And what we found was that message last week was called above and beyond. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in verse number eight. And as we pick up in verse number eight, what's happened is, yeah, the, the offerings are still coming in and all that stuff is now collected. And now what we see is these men are going to shift into actually creating what God has commanded them to do. So they're actually going to go, we're going to be working peace by piece through the actual construction of the tabernacle. We're going to look at the, the doctrinal significance. We're going to look at the devotional significance, the historical and the cultural significance of each one of these parts and pieces, okay? So this message this morning is called Following God's Instructions. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house. Lord, I praise you and thank you so much for the work you've done in my life through this week, uh, Lord, over this scripture. God, I know the first time I read it through, I just thought, what am I going to preach? I do not know. I could not see it. But Lord, as I studied over it and I looked at it, God, you kept showing me more and more and more. Thank you, Lord. I know you've spoken to me. I know that and I pray that now you would speak through me. Lord, that does not be the message that I would have, but Lord, the very one that you would have us to hear, God. Please help us to be shaped. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear, Lord, and truly be changed. Let this Bible transform us, not just inform us. God, I thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're always, as we always do, we're going to give you a, a kind of a catch up on last week of kind of what specifically was going on as we're getting ready to pick back up. So the offering, right, coming in by gangbusters, man. They're just piling it up. It's coming in like crazy. The people have now finally gotten a heart for the service of God. They've been selfish. They've been self-centered for all this time. And now they finally got a heart for the things of the Lord. And here as they're coming, they're bringing their offering. They were told in Exodus 25 too, these were the, this was the instructions that God gave Moses of what this offering, this is what they were going to be told. It says here in Exodus 25 to speak unto the children of, of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. So this is where the idea of the willing heart came from. So what they've done is they not only have done what God asked them, but now they've gone and they've gotten that abundant giving going on. They've got an excitement and a vigor for the things of God. They're clamoring to do things for the Lord. And we talked about last week, what if that heart the heart to go above and beyond, the heart to do more than God asks. What if that heart was transferred into us today as a body? What if as Christians around the world, we had the heart to say, you know what? I'm not just going to do with a minimum. I'm going to do more than what God's asked me. I'm going to go above and beyond, right? We can do that in our offerings. We do that in our service, whatever it is. But if the church was overfunded and overstaffed, imagine the, the impact on the world. Our world is an unrest. Can we all agree to that? Right? And I, the flags that are up here, I know I put them up there for July 4th, but we're going to keep them up there because you know what? This is a United States of America, United States. And I'm not making a political statement. What I'm telling you is our hearts and lives need not to be focused on things of this world. We need not be focused on the news. We need not be focused on what's taking place in the cities and the streets because guess what? All it is, if everyone got along, if everyone got along, if we got the perfect political system, which guess what? There is one coming, unfortunately. There will be a perfect political system that will be brought in by the Antichrist. And what he will do, he'll bring priests upon the earth. And everyone's going to agree, this is how we should live. And guess what? They'll be duped by the devil. So here we are fighting to have that perfect thing now. But guess what? It's not going to come. It's not going to come. Unrest is a part of life. And unrest, what does it do? It brings people to God. 
So the more unrest it is, actually the better it is for us as Christians because guess what? As people become hopeless, we offer hope. Our job is not to go out and fight them and try to drive our political agenda. That's not what we do. That's not where we're here. This is a temporal world. This is not our world, man. Our attention has got to be focused on the gospel of Christ. This is a part of my message, but it is important that we know this. I watch Christians that are battling it out online, and I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've lost sight of the goal. What's the goal? It's to reach the world with the gospel, not to get your agenda, not to get your person in the office. That doesn't matter. Those things are irrelevant in the end because if we get a perfect political system and everybody's going to hell, who cares? <laughs> That's the thing. We're so focused on the wrong thing. And God's saying, hey, you know what? Reach their hearts. Reach their hearts. Because if we truly were a United States of America, we were united on God, these things wouldn't exist. Amen. Back to my message. Sorry. That's a side note. Anyway, so as we're seeing these people here, they are previously rebellious. Now they've finally gotten a heart for God. And what's happening is they've given their gold and their silver and these precious materials. They're piling up. They're, they've got everything that they, that they need. And the materials are being brought in by the, by, the, uh, by the craftsmen. And the craftsmen are receiving them. And as they're bringing them in, you know what? That, the same heart of giving that those people have, these men have the same heart of giving for their abilities and talents. They're excited to work for God. We can see that they're actively working, and they look up from their work, and they say, oh, my goodness gracious, what's going on? Dude, they're still bringing stuff. We got, whoa, 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 Moses, stop them, man, stop them. We got too much stuff. This is way more than we need. And Moses, as we said before, he told them to stop, but that wasn't even good enough. The Bible says he had to restrain them from giving. That means that they just kept trying, even after he's saying stop, the people are like, no, 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 how about more? And he's like, stop, no, stop. Put it back, pick it back up and take it back to your tent. Would you guys cut it out? Stop, no, yell back there and tell them to stop bringing. That's what's happening, right? Imagine that heart. So now these craftsmen, they've got everything they need. They've got big piles of stuff, right? They all have all these precious materials, and they're getting after it. So here in verse number 8, this is what they're doing. Verse 8 says this, And every wise-hearted man among them that wrought the work of the tabernacle made ten curtains of fine twine linen. Okay, these are really refined, super beautiful. And it says and they're, made of, they're blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work on them. That means these are embroidered images of cherubs. So the first thing they're doing is they're creating the inner core of the tabernacle. This is going to be a representation of heaven when you would look inside of the inner core of the tabernacle as they're doing this. And as we see these things coming in, understand that God's instructions for them were for them to, uh, to, to make it exactly as he's told them. Right? He gave very specific instructions. We're going to go back and look. And what we're going to do today is we're going to compare the instructions to what they do, right? We're going to compare back and forth to see if they follow through with what God tells them. He's given them exactly what to do. So in instructions back here in Exodus 26, verse 1, these are the instructions that God gave Moses back on Mount Sinai. And it says here, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. They've done exactly what, what he said. The first thing we notice here is the fact that they are willing to honor God's word. Right off the bat, they don't alter it. They don't change it. They don't alter the, you know, I think it'd be good if we had some pink in there. You know, we slide in a little bit of orange, and I love orange. You guys like orange? Orange sounds great. No, they didn't change the colors. They didn't make extra curtains. They didn't make them different lengths and stuff like that. They just did exactly what they were told, exactly what they were told. What about you and I when we hear the Word of God, when I read the Word? Do I take exactly what God says, and do I apply it in my life? Or do most Christians today, what do they do? They read God's Word. They absorb it, they spend time on it, they adapt it, then they apply it, right? Isn't that sad? Isn't that what we do? We find ways to comfortably work it into our life. The mindset is this, you know what, I'm going to adapt God to fit me, adapt God to fit me. There are people out there that have the attitude of going, you know what, I just want to find a religion or a relationship with God that fits my life and my lifestyle. <laughs> is that not ridiculous? Adapting God to fit you as opposed to you adapting yourself to fit God. Understand, God sets the standard. God establishes the rules. God laid things out. We don't have the rules. God doesn't serve us. We serve God. And it's this selfishness, it's this attitude of arrogance that allows us to believe that God serves us. Can you imagine the perfect creator serving his imperfect creation? Now, you hear that and you go, well, perfect God, how can he create an imperfect, imperfect creation? He didn't. He created a perfect man and a perfect woman. Perfect. And he created them in his image 
and in his likeness, right? But then what happened was he also gave them what's called a, a free will. They're free moral agents. That means they get to make their own choices. Why would God do that? Because God wanted them to be able to love. And you cannot love without free will. If I tell my children, tell me you love me. Say it. You better. I love you. I'm not like, oh, man, that felt so good. Love, have feeling that love. No. See, God could command us to love him or God gives us free will. When a child of their own free will runs up and says, love you, oh, man, you're like, oh, your heart just goes, boom, swells up, man. That's it. God gave free will. So then here they are given their choice. Adam and Eve given their choice, man. And what do they do? This perfect beings choose to introduce corruption. Here they introduce corruption. What is corruption? It's evil. They bring evil into the mix. And what happens? Guess what? Fallen mankind. A fallen mankind. So now here, we're as a fallen mankind, we're trying to tell God that he needs to serve us. This is absolutely insane. We were created to serve him. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, the good works of God, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Our good works, man. We're supposed to be in servants to God. John 12.26, Jesus said this himself. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall, he, shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, will, him will my father honor. We serve God. We serve God. We serve God. It's only through arrogance and pride that we can treat God as if he serves us. The idea that he's like a, a genie in a bottle. Hey, God, I'm in trouble. Be on it right away. We want him to be there to fix all the problems, but we're not willing to serve him. Amazingly, what an arrogant attitude. And it's only because we become, and when that, what that pride does, it blinds us to our own inadequacies. It blinds us to our own failures. We're very good at picking out the faults in other people, but we have a very hard time looking at the faults within ourselves. And the hard thing about a relationship with God is God reveals fault. God shows us our shortcomings. And a lot of people, guess what? They'd rather live with their shortcomings and ignore them, judge other people, and have no relationship with God because it's a much easier way to live. But there is coming a day when everyone will stand accountable. So this arrogance, Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet people focus and work that work have their lives and they live as if God works to our good pleasure. It is a remarkable thing that we see in the midst of humanity. But guess what? In the church age that we live in, self is elevated. We become our own God. And because we're so important, it only seems right that God would serve us. So in that understanding and having that mindset, knowing that that's something that we struggle with, we have a hard time understanding why God has a problem with us changing his word. Why is it okay not to follow your instructions? Why is it not Okay, let me just give you an idea. Revelations 22 gives us a little bit of an indicator of what God thinks about changing his word. Revelations 22, 18 says this, For I testify unto you every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Verse 19, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He says, Do not change my word. Do not change it. Don't add. Don't subtract. Leave it exactly as it is. Why is it so important to him? Because God designed the Bible in a very specific way. The Bible is designed to define itself. The Bible when you want to understand Scripture, you use Scripture to prove Scripture. The concept is explained to us in 1 Corinthians 2.13. It says this, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. This is not an earthly thing, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Here's the concept. Comparing spiritual things, spiritual things with spiritual. You are comparing spiritual to spiritual. So if I see a word and I want to understand what it means, I need to find that word in other places in the Bible and see what it tells me that word means. And by crisscrossing those things, I have a deeper understanding of Scripture. That's why it's designed. So we can see if that's the way it works, that if you change certain words, well, guess what? You're going to change the fact that you can no longer crisscross the Bible because it's no longer accurate. God promised that he would preserve not only his word, but his words specifically. He says, I will preserve my words. Words. 
So specifically, God has been able to preserve the English language that's in one translation throughout time that still exists today. It's the most popular Bible in the popular Bible in the entire world. Guess what? It's been saved for all of this time. And there's an idea. God, I need, I pay attention to the fact that there are four, over 450 English translations of the Bible right now in existence. 450 different translations. Each one has got a patent on it or a, or a trademark on it. In order to trademark something, what do you have to do? You have to change 10% of an existing material, right? So now each one's got to be altered because if you're going to make money on it, it can't be something else, right? You've got to change it. And what happens? There's only one that does not have a trademark. It is a King James Bible. It's been around for over 400 years unchanged. Now look at this. That's why I use the King James Bible. And my reason, you can use whatever Bible you choose to. I'm only telling you this is why I do it. Because bottom line is I'm going to battle every day. I'm in a spiritual war. The Bible says that I'm going into a spiritual fight against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So here I go, and the Bible tells me that my weapon is a sword of the Spirit, right? The sword of the Spirit. So here's my weapon. Do I want it to be the most precise and the sharpest weapon I possibly can for the spiritual war I'm going to go into? That's my choice. Absolutely. Can you fight with a duller weapon? Certainly. I mean, you could bludgeon somebody with a piece of metal, man. You can still fight the battle, no doubt about it. But you're not going to be as accurately able to fight as you would otherwise. And I'm going to show you just one example to why this is the case, okay? I'm going to take you to the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. It says, How art thou fallen, Isaiah 12, 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, now here we start to see the five I wills, we know who this is, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Do we have any doubt who that is? We know exactly who it is. In fact, the King James Bible tells us who he is. His name is Lucifer. The problem is if you don't have a King James Bible, that name's not in there. That name's not in there. What you're going to find is this. Let's go to the NIV and look at the exact same verse. What does it say? This is the most popular Bible out there, the NIV. It says this, Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Okay? Now let's go to Revelation 22.16 in that same Bible in the NIV and let's see what it says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring and the bright morning star. So according to that scripture, the morning star is identified as Satan, obviously, in Isaiah. Well, now in Revelations, holy moly. Look at that. Now in Revelations 22, 6, in the King James, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you that these things have been the churches. I am the root of the offspring and the bright and morning star. If you have a King James Bible, guess what? It says Lucifer telling you who that is, and this other one says morning star. What I'm telling you is this. That can create confusion. Just one little change can create confusion. If someone does not know the word, could you read that and go, man, that's not Jesus. Of course you could. But let's say somebody's learning the word, and they go to that, and they go, well, I did a word search, and Jesus fell from heaven? How does that make sense? Do you see how that can create confusion? Understand, God is not the author of confusion. God makes things clear and precise, and they're designed that way. Confusion. We know who introduces confusion, and we know the reason is to hide the truths of the word of God. Now, so there is changing the word, which we should not do, and then there's just disregarding the word, <laughs> just disregarding the word. So there are sins of commission, right? Sin of commission means that I choose to do it. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm not supposed to lie, cheat, or steal, but I do it anyway. That's just the way I go. But then there's sins of omission. This is things that go, I'm just going to pick and choose kind of what I want to follow, and those other ones I'm not going to worry about so much. This could be, you know, hey, I'm, I'm kind to strangers because I know, know I'm supposed to, but then we come home and we neglect our own families amazingly. But there are other things that we just, because of ignorance, we just don't know. But unfortunately, the church age, we struggle with both of these, commission and omission. A lot of it's because of ignorance, because people just simply do not know the word. Guys, I was guilty for years and years and years and years of living a life of commission and omission. Still today, I struggle with the exact same things, but it's a matter of understanding what it is God expects of us. God has a high standard for us as Christians. He's trying to get us to be like him every day. It's not that he wants to beat us down, but he wants to get us to make changes. He wants us to let go of these things that we believe are so important, the very things that so many times compel us into our flesh. And we'll look at that as we go on. But luckily, in this construction of this temple, or this, of this tabernacle, guess what? 
There's no commissions of sins. They're not doing anything. They're not adding anything. And guess what? They're not omitting anything. They are following the instructions of God. And the same zealous, zealousness that we saw in the givers is now within these construction workers there, or whatever they are. I don't know, contractors. We'll call them whatever we want to call them, but <laughs> these current day workers, right? So here they are building the stuff. Now, what's interesting is it's so cool. I love how God works because look at this. Way back in Exodus 3, before Moses even went back to Egypt, the burning bush, God told him that God was going to make provision for him, provision for the people. He said, when you leave Egypt, they're going to give you a bunch of stuff. Check this out. What's so cool about this, right? So here, they've got just what they need to build what God's asked them, the right colors, the right materials, the right amount. They have all those things. And it's not coincidence because way back in the day, back there, way back then, God was already orchestrating in the Egyptians. They had no clue. You know, this woman's going to the bazaar, and she's like, oh, look at all that purple and blue fabric. Oh, this is beautiful. I'm going to take this back to my house. <laughs> right? So this Egyptian woman just thinks she's just shopping. She don't know. She's gathering all the stuff. So God's working in her life. And then here come the, the Israelites. They don't have a clue that anything's going on. And then all of a sudden, the, the people feel compelled to give them stuff. And what do they do? They give them the very same materials. So the Egyptians were just caretakers to get it to the Israelites. And the Israelites, then God lays on their heart. And what do they do? They bring it to God. And God says, well, you know what? All the things that I need, here they are. They're laying out right there. And I work to these different people in order to achieve it. So it's amazing how God works in our temporal world in such an advanced and amazing way. I don't know where I am in the message, but let's just keep on rolling. Here we go. All right. So as we're working our way through this, understand, as he's orchestrated these things, as he's worked his way through these Israelites, the Egyptians now, or the, the Israelites follow through with their offering. And as you were looking into this tabernacle, when it would be built, when you went inside of the Holy of Holies, which is the main area, or the Holy, the holy Place, and then you were, if you were to actually be able to go into the Holy of Holies, which is only once a year for one specific man, what you would see all around you is you see this drapery of this beautiful fabric with all this embroidery. You would literally see the splendor of heaven represented. And you'd be surrounded with cherubims, right? So that's what we would see. Now in verse number 9, it says here, The length of one curtain was 20 and 8 cubits. 28 cubits works out to be about 42 feet. And the breadth of one curtain, 4 cubits. Now that's 6 feet. So these curtains, and it says here, and, it says, and curtains were all of one size. Okay? So these things are supposed to be 42 feet by 6 feet. They're supposed to be, excuse me, 10 of them. And they'll all be the same size. Same design. Precise adherence to God's word. Let's see, Exodus 26, 2. Here were the instructions that Moses relays. The length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits, and the breadth of one curtain shall be four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have one measure. They're all going to be the same dimension. They're all going to be the same design. And then verse number 10. And he coupled the five curtains one unto another, and the other five curtains he coupled one unto the other. So Bezalel, who was the leader of this group, right, he says, look, we're going to get these five and these five. We're going to sew them together. We're going to make into a larger setting. So we've got these five foot by 42 foot, or five foot, or four, four, 42 foot by six foot panels being sewn together. The instructions were five curtains shall be coupled together one to another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled one to another. So now what we end up with is two 30 foot by 42 foot curtains. Now understand, the reason why this is being done like this is because this thing is, like we said before, it's a mobile home for God, right? It is. <laughs> this big tent is going to be set up from place to place, right? So this thing's going to be carried on people's backs. So as to making something that's gigantic, that would weigh too much for one man to carry, it's made in portions and parts so that it could be actually packaged up and travel. So we're seeing these two different halves. So now how? How are they going to bring them together? Verse number 11. It says, and he made loops of blue on the edge of one curtain from the selvage. The word selvage means like a seam or like a hem, right? So along the hemmed edge on the side, he says you're going to put uh, blue, a hoop, uh, loops of blue on the edge of one curtain. And it says in the coupling, likewise, he made in the uttermost side of another curtain in the coupling of the second. So they're doing the same thing. They're literally making a mirror image of the two. Fifty loops made he in one curtain, and fifty loops made he in the edge of the curtain, which was in the coupling of the second. The loops held one curtain to another. So now what we have is we've got these long curtains that are 30 feet by 42 feet. They're laid out for them. They've got rings that have been sewn in them just so they can all match up. And now the rings are going to be brought together as they'll make them one curtain, and they're going to join them. How do they join them? Verse number 13. And he made 50 tachets of gold. A tachet is like a hook or a clasp or a ring. We're not exactly sure how it looked. And it coupled the curtains one into another with the tachets, so it became one tabernacle. Notice the way that states that. It became one tabernacle. Now, what we want to do is we want to compare, obviously, the instructions. That's back here in Exodus 26. We're going to run through those instructions quickly, see if they matched up and if they did what they were told. 
And thou shalt make loops of blue upon the edge of the one curtain from the edge, from the selvage, in the coupling. And likewise, thou shalt thou make in the uttermost edge of another curtain in the coupling of the second. Fifty loops shalt thou make in the curtain, in one curtain, and fifty loops shalt thou make in the edge of the curtain that is in the coupling of the second, that the loops may have, may take hold one of another. And thou shalt make, look at this, fifty tachets of gold and couple the curtains together with the tachets. And it says, it shall be one tabernacle. It's a relevance there. What we're seeing here is we're seeing these two matching beautiful linen curtains, these embroidered curtains are being brought together through the system of hooks and tachets. And now we'll have a 60 foot by 42 foot covering that would be draped over the frame. Now what we see picturing here, we see something pictured obviously physically, right? But there's something spiritual that's being pictured here at the same time, which is really, really cool, okay? So we see something where these two are becoming one. We're seeing a unity or a marriage of two things coming together. Genesis 2, 24 says this, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Notice he says they shall be, it'll be one tabernacle. What God is picturing here is he's saying, look, this is two becoming one. And check this out. These two becoming one. And what are they joined by? Gold. Rings or hooks, they're joined together to become one. Listen to this. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says this. For this shall, for this cause. Now Paul's reiterating Genesis 2, 24. He says this. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they, shoot, they too shall be one flesh. Then verse 32, check it out. He tells us, he says, and this is a mystery. This is those things of God that you need to understand the Bible. Look, he says, this is a great mystery. Because he's, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He says, so when I'm talking about marriage here, and you guys think I'm talking about Genesis 2.24, I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church coming together. It's a picture of that bride and that groom. It's an awesome thing. So we see two becoming one. The holy place, man. When you were inside of there, you would see one unified image all around you. And that's the thing you and I are supposed to be. This beautiful, this beautiful unified image. Should be the, that should be the church, right? As a church, we should be one beautiful image working together, unified. It should be the case in our families. There shouldn't be division in families. There shouldn't be fighting and stuff like that. If everyone's heart is on God, guess what? There's no division in your family. Everyone has the same focus. And you realize that this temporal world is really silly. And this temporal world is about distractions and trying to divert us away from truth. But if we were all at the same heart, we would be in unity. It's about unity in our families and our relationships and our spousal relationships. Husbands and wives, man, it should be a beautiful picture of unity, two becoming one. It's a unified image. And this same thing, it's supposed to be that way with us and our Savior. We should be in unity with him. If God asks us to do something, it shouldn't be like, oh, man. It should be like, you know what? I was already thinking that, Lord. <laughs> right on. Let's do this thing. Let me just do what you said. Verse 14 says this, And he made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains he made them. Verse 15, The length of one curtain was 30 cubits. 30 cubits is 45 feet. And four cubits, six feet, was the breadth of one curtain. The eleven curtains were of one size. Okay, he says, And he coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. Now this is a little bit different. Now, now he's taken five curtains and six curtains. Is that what God instructed him to do? Let's take a look. Exodus 26, verses 7 through 9. Here are the instructions. And thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair to be covered upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. Oh, he's doing right. The length of one curtain shall be 30 cubits. That's 45 feet. And the breadth of one curtain, four cubits. That's six feet. And the eleven curtains shall be all of one measure. He's right on target. And thou shalt, cup, thou shalt couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And thou shalt double the sixth curtain in the forefront of the tabernacle. That last line there is talking about when it's actually installed, how it's going to hang in regards to the fabric. So again, we see the instructions are precisely followed, right? They've been sewn together. Now you've got 30 foot by 40 foot curtain of goat's hair. And you've got another one that's 36 feet by 45 feet. And those things are going to be coupled together. How will they do it? Verse 17. And he made 50 loops upon the uttermost edge of the curtain. And the coupling of 50 loops made he upon the edge of the curtain, which coupled the second. And he made 50 tachets of brass to couple the tent together, that it might be one. So now we see right here, they're going to follow instructions. They're doing exactly what they're told. Exodus 26, 10 through 13 is the instructions. Thou shalt, thou shalt make 50 loops on the edge of the one curtain, that it out, then the outmost and the coupling and the 50 loops in the edge of the, of the curtain, which coupleth the second. Thou shalt make 50 tachets of brass, same material, and put the tachets into the loops and couple the tent together, that it may be one. Again, 
attaches, these connecting points. But what's interesting, pay attention to this. Last time they were gold, right? When you're inside where the linen is, which is the representation of God, the tachets are made of gold because gold is a representation of deity and a representative holiness. But when you get outside of God, well, it changes materials. When it gets outside, guess what it turns into? Brass. Well, guess what brass is associated with? Judgment. Judgment. So now we have gold on the inside and we have brass on the outside. And notice also the fact that we've moved from this beautiful fabric, this beautiful linen. Now we're moving on to skins. There was death involved in collecting those, collecting those skins, right? There was judgment involved in those skins. So we see we're going from the holiness of God and the inside of the tabernacle. We're now moving into the world of man. We're getting away from holiness. Take note of that. These skins, these animal skins. As Christians, guess what? You and I, we have the temple of God within us. The Spirit of God lives within us, man. We are indwelled with the Spirit of God. The tabernacle is inside of us. But what clothes, what is it that blocks the Spirit of God from the world? Our flesh. Our flesh. Here's a representation of God in the center of this tabernacle. And the first layer outside of that is skin, just like us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. We are the tabernacle, man. It is us right now. There is a light within this tabernacle that's going to be a lampstand. It's going to have seven, different, have seven different candles on it. And it's going to be a representation of the light of God shining in the tabernacle, shining in heaven. And guess what? That light is within us. So when the light doesn't shine, what's in the way? It's the flesh, man. It's the flesh. So we're seeing this picture of humanity. And then these instructions actually continued in Exodus 26. God gave a little bit further instructions telling us about the installation of this goat skin. It says, And the remnant that remaineth of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remaineth shall hang over the backside of the tabernacle. And a cubit on the one side and a cubit on the other side of that which remaineth in the length of the curtains of the tent, it shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. So the goat skin covering is larger than the linen. Why would that be? Because guess what? You need to completely obscure that heavenly view. The only person that would be able to see inside of that heavenly view would be somebody who got past that skin. They got past the flesh, and they went into the core, right? So what we see here is this picture. If you were going to see that heavenly representation, there's only one way you could get in there. The door. There is a door in this Tabernacle, And guess what? It's on the east side because God always travels from east to west. You'd walk in the east side heading west. Just a little side note. Anyway, as we continue, right, we look here and we see this door. Jesus, there's only one person who ever mentioned and called himself the door in the Bible. It's Jesus. Here he goes in John 10, verse 7 through 11. Then said Jesus unto them very, again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Look, we're the sheep, guys. He's the door. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. He says, look, they were tools of the enemy, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and destroy. And I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Right? This picture of the door. So doctrinally, if you were going to go to heaven, guess what? You've got to go by way of the door, which means you only go by way of Christ. He is the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man come to the Father but by, but by me. Right? Doctrinally, that's the truth. Verse number 19. This is our last verse. And he made a covering for the tent of ram skins, dyed red, and a covering of badger skins above that. Last one. Let's see if they follow the instructions. Here we go. 2614. says here, and thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of badger skins. So these next two layers of skin, of flesh, are to ensure that the tabernacle is insulated and also that it's waterproof. So there's a practical purpose to what's being done. We can historically understand that that's what's going on. They made it for like that for a reason. They needed to be obscure all the light. They wanted to be completely isolated and completely separated. But the whole thing is there's another picture that's here. There's another picture of why it's so important. The inner layer of goatskin. Now, they were, more finely, uh, they were more finely done than the other ones, but understand, compared to the linen, that was very specific and very intricately done. When you get to that first layer of goatskin, it's, it's relatively refined, but it's not super refined. But then we get a little further out. We get to the ramskin. Well, guess what? The ramskin, all we know about the ramskin is that it's red. 
There's no other specific details given whatsoever. So we see there, there's something different there. The ram skin is specific only in that one area, and we get less and less specific as we get from the center out. But the question is why? Now, as I read that, one of the things that stood out was why is it red? Why is it red? What's the point? Blood. Blood, right? So why is it red? That, that was my question. And what does it represent in regards to, if I'm looking at the tabernacle as the core, and I'm working my way through the flesh, well, let's just imagine. I want you to take it over here. Isaiah 118 says this. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, that's red, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice that this is a ram. What do you get from a ram? You get wool from a ram. There's not an, it's strange, and I don't know if this is necessarily the fact, but is it possible that if this is a representation of humanity, that the outer layer, which is dirty and ugly, the badger skins, just below the surface, there's a struggle with sin? There's a layer of sin that we struggle with, and we try to keep it covered up with that badger skin, but just below the surface, because we're in our flesh and we're not redeemed yet, when I'm not redeemed out of this flesh, guess what? It's going to fight me every single day. And below the surface, turmoil below the surface. We all have it, man. There's a churning within us to do wrong, man. There's this churning and this lure to be drawn into our flesh. And look at this picture that God puts even in the tabernacle. I don't know if that's right, but it sure makes sense to me. I can't prove it, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> but the skins get progressively less refined, right? This layer three is dyed. Layer four, it just says badger skins. Now, if you know what a badger looks like, I didn't know what a badger looks like. I had to look it up. I don't know what it is. A badger, a badger is brown, and he's gray, and he's got black and white stripes on him. He's just a kind of a hodgepodge of stuff when you see him. So you've got to imagine this last layer, it's not attractive. It is a hodgepodge of patterns and pelts all stuck together, right? It's fur, right? So that fur is going to get wet. It's going to be dirty. It's going to smell bad probably. How many of you stink after a few days if you don't shower, right? Yeah, man, right? We stink. Our flesh is a problem. Our flesh is dirty. Our flesh is ugly. So what we see in the tabernacle is the outside is ugly, man. Our flesh is ugly. Yeah. When we're in our flesh, what do we do? We say things we should not say. Yeah. We do hurtful things. We make choices of things that we should not do. It's not pretty. So people that are in their flesh are very, very unattractive. We see it right now in our world, man. Some people that will do the most horrific, hurtful things. They're not being led of the Spirit. They're being led by their flesh. So here these badger skins are a picture of us. Oh, it's amazing because of who we are and because of our sense of self and our unwillingness to look in the mirror. What do we do? We try to pretty up the skin. Boy, you know what we do? We'll brush that badger skin. Brush it out real nice. Put some perfume on that badger skin. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put some little bows on the badger skin. Oh, yeah, man. We're going to look this in. Wash it really good. Scrub it. Make sure it looks good. And you might even get that badger skin enough where people go, you know what, man, that badger skin looks good. And you're like, it does, doesn't it? Oh, to me all day, man. I've been working on it all my life. These badger skins are beautiful. And guess what? You might get glory for the badger skin. But what happens to God's glory? It's all lost. Because we never get below the surface. And all of a sudden, we become this superficial being that literally lives about the outside but is so dead on the inside because we're not submitted to God. We're not about clearing away the flesh. We're about celebrating the flesh. That's a problem, man. That's a problem. This picture in this, in this tabernacle is to tell us, hey, wake up. The flesh is the problem. The flesh is the thing that separates you from me. The flesh is the thing that keeps you from shining to this world. And the more you spend focus and time and attention on the flesh, the less I show and it's such an amazing fact of life as Laodicean people in this church age. We are so focused on the outside that we never look within. There are Christians that have been saved for 50 years that have never grown. They don't have a clue how to share the gospel. They don't know the Bible. They're not convicted of sin. They don't understand. Not because they're bad people, because they're ignorant to the word of God. Sins of omission. Omission. So God wants us to reveal the tabernacle, how do we do that? Well, you got to peel the layers of flesh back. you got to peel the skins back. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but guess what? The Lord pictures it for us. He shows it to us, right? The problem we have is, in fact, like I said, we focus so much on the outside, but God says, hey, look, I want you to reveal the tabernacle within. I want you to reveal the light of God within to this world. They need to know there's hope, not that you just blend in with all the other badger skins. 
You need to stand out. And Jesus showed it to us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Check this out. This is a physical example of what we need to do. Matthew 5, 16, or actually Matthew 17, 12, or 17, verses 1 and 2. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter and James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up under a high mountain, and was transfigured before them, right? Transformed physically. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light, man. He peels back the flesh physically and shows them. This is me. This is who I really am. Oh, wow. Right? And it overwhelms them. What do they do? They fall on their face because they can't even look, man. And if you truly, man, if we stand for God and we peel back the flesh and people could really see God in us, they would fall to their knees before Him. Not because we're something special, because the light is God's light. And see, you and I have to do it spiritually. He physically peeled back the flesh, but we can do it spiritually, man. You can peel back the layers of this crap. This garbage that we live in, this outside ugly, the sin, the goat skin, we peel it back and guess what? God says, here I am. He's within us for a reason. He's trying to call us to do it. He's commanded us to do it. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, man. He says, do it. Do it. What are you supposed to be? Ephesians 5, 8 says, and you have, he says, you are sometimes darkness. And now are ye light in the Lord. How are we supposed to walk? Walk as children of light, not as children of the flesh. Deny the flesh. Walk in the spirit that ye not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's God's command, man. And how do we do it? The good thing about God is guess what? He always instructs us. Just like he instructed them. He told them exactly what to do. Guess what? He tells us exactly what to do. How do you do it? Ephesians 4 verses 29 through 32. Listen to this. 429 says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That means not through your fingers, not through the tweets. No corrupt communication. It doesn't say reduce it. It says no corrupt communication. Not one word. Not one word. Corrupt communication means things that have got evil intent. Right? I'm not saying something to build you up. I'm trying to knock you. I'm trying to change you. I want to impact you, right? Now what is it says this? Listen. And that which is good, listen to this, but that which is good to the use of edifying. If you don't know what the word edify means, an edifice of a building, right? An edifice. Edifice means to build. So it says here, the words that you share should be for the purpose to build people up. How many of us, just if you're being honest with yourselves, how many of us are good at tearing people down? Be honest. You know you are. We can see what's wrong with people. Heck yeah, somebody does something stupid. I'm not like, man, you know what? You did that so well. It's beautiful. I'm like, that guy's a moron. What's wrong with him? Right? It's so easy because it's easy to find people. And it's so easy to see when they do stupid stuff. We do stuff. We don't want anybody to pay attention to it. I just want to, oh. you know, I'm walking. I follow. I meant to do that. It's totally intentional. Right? We want to hide this stuff. And God's saying, hey, you know what? Guess what? You're to be edifying. You're supposed to build people up because the world's tearing them down. I'm telling you right now, the world is tearing them down. Why are people so desperate? Because the world is falling apart around them. And that is all the security they have, which is what they see because they walk by sight and not by faith. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. Right? Totally, totally different. Look at the last part, verse 2, or verse 29. That it may minister grace unto the hearers. Minister grace. Guess what? We are all ministers. If you're a child of God, you are a minister. You're supposed to minister grace. You're supposed to let people feel, feel, uh, feel, feel loved and supported and understood. One of the biggest desires of human, mankind, of any human being you'll ever meet, they want to be understood. And if you'll take the time to listen, instead of fight, you don't have to agree with what they say. They're lost people. What are they going to say? They're going to say stupid stuff. What do we used to say? Stupid stuff. My job is not to judge them. My job is to listen. They're going to tell me what's wrong. They're going to tell me the need. I'm going to hear their brokenness. I'm going to understand a better understanding of where they're coming from. Because if they have something, something in common, one thing, just one little thing, that I can connect with them, and we can connect and build a bridge, one connection can create trust. And if there's trust, guess what? Then they will listen to you. But when you're fighting them, and you have your agenda, and they have their agenda, they're just going to strengthen their stand and you'll strengthen yours, and it won't go anywhere. 
God says we reach them with love. We are to edify. We're to minister grace unto the hearer. Verse 30 says this, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. When God's convicting you to do something and you go against it, man, you grieve the Spirit of God. He says, which ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness. Man, how many people are bitter? If somebody hurts you when you're a child, there are people that are sitting in this room today that when you were hurt when you were six years old, seven years old, eight years old, and the bitterness from that betrayal or that pain is still alive and well in your heart, man. Let it go. Let it go. It's poisoning your soul, and it makes you ineffective for God. He wants you to shine, but guess what? When we fall into our bitterness, we thicken the flesh. We strengthen its hold, and we block the light. It says, and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. You're not supposed to be out there tearing people down and fighting. There are people that go, man, I can't wait till November 3rd. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Everybody's all worked up about the election. Guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's their souls that matters. It's the souls of mankind. It's the souls of people that you know. That you can have a conversation about politics for an hour and the gospel never come up. God's opening a door for you to talk to them about him. Not the stupid things of this world. It says, but put away. It says, evil speaking, and put away from you with all malice. So then we put those things away. We don't do those things, but what do we do? Verse 32, here's instructions. And be ye kind one to another. Wow. Kind one to another. How many of us have had somebody in traffic? You're driving. The road's running out. They purposely get over when the road's running out. They're trying to shoot up in front of you, and you're like, oh, no, 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 not today, baby. Uh-uh. <laughs> Come on, horses, let's get this thing going. No, no, you're not blocking me. Am I the only one? <laughs> right? That crosses our mind, right? But if I was being kind, what is it, Matt? They're, they're not going to slow me down. Maybe a half a second I might be slowed down. Maybe they're going to go faster and push traffic along. Who knows? But for whatever reason... Instead of being kind, I'm going to teach him a lesson. You know what? You know that lane's running out. I'm going to make you see what I, you idiot, right? And I'm going to judge him. I'm going to be angry. What if? What if they're trying to get to the hospital because their child's been in a car accident and we're here we are trying to stop them? We don't know what people are going through, but yet we want to judge them in their situation. What if you're just kind to everybody? You give everybody the benefit of the doubt and you say, you know what? Hey, God, you have a plan. Let me be kind because that's what I'm called to do. Kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Man, that means when someone hurts, you hurt. You're not like, well, good thing it's not me. You see the people out in Seattle that are living right now with their whole world being destroyed around them. And we're like, serves you right. No. People that would do those things are broken people because hurting people hurt people. They need Christ. They need love. They need understanding. They need kindness. Yet many of us, we slip into judgment. We're ready to say, you know what? Nuke the whole city. Have those thoughts crossed my mind? Sure, but then God goes, hey, 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 that's not who you're called to be. Feed into your flesh, guess what? You'll be all about it. But if we're walking in the Spirit, it will go quickly from your heart. It says here, forgiving one another. Huh, forgiving one another. Imagine that. How many of us are carrying grudges? We may not admit it, but they're there. There's people in our life that we don't pray for hoping the best for them. We pray for God to work in their life to bring justice. Reprove them, God. Straighten them out. Make them pay for what they did. That's not the heart of a forgiving person. A forgiving person says, you know what? God, work in their life. God, work in their life and change their heart. Help them become my brother and sister that we might serve side by side in the army of Christ. That we might win the lost world. Help them not be a minister of unrighteousness, but let them be a minister of righteousness, God. Forgive them. Work in their life. Lift them up, God, and use them for your glory. And it's really amazing because when you get to that kind of heart and you pray for people like that, it's really hard to carry a grudge towards them because all of a sudden, guess what? Now you're like a cheerleader for them. You want to see them succeed. And God lifts you out of that burden of carrying the pain of unforgiveness. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Remember the words as and like, the two most important words in the Bible. Because it always tells you there's an example coming. You're supposed to do all these things as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The Lord's told us what to do. All right, told us what to do. He even told us how to do it. <laughs> he laid out instructions. He says, this is the problem. This is how you fix it. This is what you need to do. 
question is, will we look to the world for our instructions on how we live? That's what a majority of people do. Well, guess what? The wisdom of this world, the Bible says, is sensual and devilish. If we follow that, you know where it'll take us, straight into corruption. Or will we turn our hearts to God, man, and live our lives following God's instructions? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, God, for the blessing of the message. Thank you, Lord, for the word and, Lord, how you have so intensely and beautifully shown us what is it we need to understand. God, help us to be changed. Lord, not to be okay with who we are, not to be focused on the flesh, God, that we try to portray to this world, but, Lord, let us strip away the flesh that the Spirit of God might be shown. God, help us not worry about what people think. Help us just stand for truth and for love and for kindness. And, Lord, help us, God, to reach out to the broken world that's around us. They are people in desperate need all around us, God. They do not know where to turn. They are blind by their anger. They're blind by their fear. They're blind by their own sin. God, help the glorious light of the gospel break through the blindness. Lord, use us as instruments of glory in their life. God, burden us to be willing to step outside of ourselves. Burden us, Lord Jesus, to be willing to step up and inconvenience ourselves for a conversation that might change someone's eternity. God, I thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us with our heads bowed and our eyes still closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I don't know. Guys, 19 years ago, I'd never heard the clear presentation of the gospel. I did not know who Jesus Christ was, truly. I'd seen him on a cross. I didn't know his story. I didn't understand why he came. I didn't understand that I was a sinner. I didn't know that I was separated from God because of my sin, which the Bible tells me. For the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. It's a gift, and God offered that gift to me 19 years ago, and I received it that night and changed my life forever. But it's a matter of the heart. God's not going to force you to receive it. He's going to offer it to you. He offered it from the cross. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that person shall be saved. Not might be saved, not could be saved. It's a choice. Just like Adam and Eve made a choice to introduce corruption, you can introduce righteousness through Christ. You get to choose. It's your will against God's. If you'll bow your will to him, it's not a ceremony. It's not a magic prayer. It's just a matter of the heart. If you're willing to receive Christ as your Savior, let me tell you this. He's ready to receive you right now. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, if you've never done that, and you want to pray today and you want to receive him, you have that opportunity right now. He's listening as we speak. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all that I've done wrong, for the people I've hurt, and the times that I've hurt you over and again. I'm asking you to come into my heart. I'm asking you to come into my life. By faith, I'm asking you to be my Savior. Lord, to pay the price for my sin debt and save me for an eternity. God, thank you for the work you've done in my life today. Help me live for you. And, Lord, that I might be a minister of righteousness. God, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.